the hard shoulder on News Talk with Nissan Subscribe and Drive. No deposit, no compromise, no fuss. Find out more at Nissan.ie. Shane Hannon with me for another edition of Fact or Fable. Shane of Off the Ball fame with me every Tuesday to confirm or rubbish some of the most popular myths and truths out there. No, no surprises uh, what we are talking about, uh, given what we've just listened to there. Uh, uh, continuing the 007 theme across the station this week with the release of No Time to Die, Shane is investigating how accurate is James Bond's life as a MI6 super spy. Shane, I, <laughs> this is a great one and, and, and that music does get us all in the mood. I suppose, first of all, like MI6 specifically, what's the difference between MI5 and MI6? Yeah, this is a, this is an interesting question. It, look, this is a topic we all wanted to look into this week and, and, and I guess the James Bond lifestyle is one we, we look at um, in, in quite a jealous way in some ways. <clears throat> but yeah, that, that difference between MI5 and MI6 is, is a crucial one, Kieran, because this mystery surrounding British spies means for over 100 years we've been fascinated by this. But MI5 and MI6, unquestionably the two most famous uh, British spy agencies, are infamous in some ways, both based in London. But there are actually, in fact, 15 other military intelligence um, departments which have now either disbanded or absorbed into one of those two. So MI5 looks after domestic issues. That's uh, officially been known as the security service in the UK since 1931. Uh, MI5 has kind of become a, a shorthand came into existence during the First World War. So like most of these uh, departments, it was the fifth branch, hence the MI5, of the Directorate of Military Intelligence of the War Office, um, which was the predecessor of the, of the Ministry of Defence in, in the UK uh, previously. And then it, it kind of merged in with Scotland Yard as well. So MI5 is no longer part of the military, still works closely, of course, with the military. But then MI6, that's the juicy one. That's the one we all want to know about. That's the agency made famous, of course, by James Bond, However, it's officially known as the SIS, so Secret Intelligence Service. Now, uh, since 2009, the MI6 job has been to protect the British public at home uh, by working secretively abroad. So hence the, the James Bond link there. So they prevent terrorism and cyber terrorism and that sort of thing. So I guess that's the, the James Bond link. So what is it about them then, MI5 and MI6, that makes them so famous? Yeah, like I guess the job type, the job descriptions. Now, when you read the other job descriptions of the other military intelligence departments, they're juicy as well. But because MI5 and MI6 are the only two in existence anymore, they are, of course, the ones that we end up spending the most time talking about. So a lot of people wouldn't realize that there were a number of these military intelligence sections. Uh, there were 10, in fact, during the First World War, 17 by the end of the Second World War. So they fairly grew. Now, few of them had anything to do with, with secret intelligence, Kieran. Uh, MI4 were responsible for supplying military maps. MI9 helped Allied troops evade and escape from behind enemy lines. There are others as well that, that have quite interesting, um, I guess, links. And, and uh, MI1, for example, was was involved in, in code breaking. Um, MI13 was actually never used. It was skipped maybe because people were a little sceptical of the number 13. That's Perhaps it was... It possibly, but it was used in Marvel movies quite famously as well. So loads of other departments, Kieran, that we don't really talk about. 15 other areas protecting the British public, which no longer exist today. So quite a fascinating history. Well, then this depiction of James Bond as a spy for MI6 or SIS, as they're more accurately called, how realistic is it? 
you would think on the website, uh, Kieran, that they would be trying to, you know, dissuade you from from linking James Bond with the realistic life of an SAS officer. But having said that, there is a passage on the the SAS website that would suggest it's not quite all fanciful fiction. So there is a quote that says on their website, James Bond, as Ian Fleming originally conceived him, was based on reality. This says any author, though, that needs, of course, needs to inject a level of glamour and excitement beyond reality in order to sell. But of course, they would say this. Uh, By the time the filmmakers focused on Bond, the gap between truth and fiction had already widened. Nevertheless, they say, uh, staff who join SIS can look forward to a career that will have moments when the gap narrows just a little and the certainty of a stimulating and rewarding career, which, like Bonds, will be in the service of their country. So uh, maybe closer than uh, people might have realised, the gap between uh, fact and fiction. But uh, in terms of knowing what they do or, or knowing what the real James Bond does, I mean, have any former James Bonds, former MI6 officers spoken about the job? They have, actually. They have. Like, one one famous or infamous name for, for people might be uh, Richard Tomlinson. So Richard, uh, well, he lives in New Zealand uh, today, as far as I'm aware, but a former officer of that MI6 department, the SIS, uh, and he was, of course, imprisoned in 1997. He gave a, a synopsis of a proposed book detailing his career with the MI6, which, of course, uh, the MI6 themselves didn't really appreciate. He was sacked, sentenced for spilling the beans of what they've been up to. This book, called uh, The Big Breach, he described various things, how he smuggled Russian missile secrets out of Moscow. He posed as a journalist and recruited agents in the Balkans that was to gather intelligence on the Serbs and even disrupted an alleged Iranian attempt to procure chemicals for weapons. So he gave up a lot of information uh, in this book. He was asked about what you know life is like as an MI6 agent, a Bond-esque agent, and whether it was true to form. And he said it is a wide gap. Occasionally, the gap narrows. He says uh, they, they rarely carry guns, let alone have license to kill, though under this 1994 Intelligence Act, the Foreign Secretary can authorise them to conduct operations abroad, which would be illegal in Britain. So he says you spend a lot of time at the desk, but he says there's not everything that we can tell you. So even he kept a few secrets close to hand. He says perhaps uh, James Bond is really a combination of the SIS and the SAS. So, of, of course, you've got the cloak and dagger secrecy, the violence, the weaponry, Um and different parachuting and gadgets. He says the gadgets is one thing about being an MI6 agent that is certainly true to form with Bond. He says uh, SIS people love gadgets. For example, for in his case, they used to hide transmitters in car ornaments in the form of Garfield the cat, which I thought was very <laughs> Bond-esque. <laughs> it certainly is. What about, actually, Bond-esque, what about the 007 thing? Yeah, that's a really, really interesting one. So the, the, the history behind this 007 number and Bond's specific number of 007 apparently inspired in part by a 16th century English secret agent who used that code uh, for his messages to Queen Elizabeth I. So these two zeros, of course, uh, like in the movies and the books, supposed to signify for your eyes only. So this guy was called John Dee, um, and he was supposed to have written uh, various things to uh, Elizabeth I in correspondence. Uh, He sent sent off basically on affairs of state by Elizabeth I, and that cryptic 007 signature, uh, Ian Fleming apparently took a visit to Manchester Cathedral according to a book called Secret Manchester, and was in thank- it was thanks to Elizabeth I, for whom this guy, John D. guy may have been a spy, that he, he then went on to become warden of Manchester Collegiate College. That's that's one area uh, and one idea where the, 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 the idea comes from. In this in the first Bond novel, though, here in Casino Royale, and that 2006 uh, film adaptation, of course, with, with Daniel Craig, uh, the double O concept is introduced. In Bond's words, he, all, he says... You've had to kill a chap in cold blood in the course of some assignment to earn the double O and Bond's number 007 awarded to him because he twice killed in fulfilling assignments. So it's 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 involving the lethal 
uh, the lethal deadly force that's allowed to MI6 agents, uh, the, the 00 number designates a past killing. And it's not until the, the third novel, in fact, Moonraker, that the 00 number designates a license to kill. So it's quite ambiguous how it comes in, but it, it, it kind of comes to us in uh, Casino Royale. So the first novel and the 2006 movie, an interesting history. Yeah, there's other things, isn't there, between the novels and the movies that that, that don't exactly match up, or maybe the, the image of Bond we have from the movies isn't exactly what's in the Ian Fleming novel. I mean, the drink then, the vodka martini, is that accurate? <laughs> I This is this is something that's kind of disappointed me. I, I figured, you know, this guy, this, this vodka martini thing is has been in the books, been in the films as far as we remember, but it's apparently... Uh, a strange one. So, of course, we know and uh, we have uh, the author of Goldeneye, where Bond was born, a guy called Matthew Parker. He's writing and he makes a fair point. He says film characters need catchphrases. So this attachment of Bond to the vodka martini, shaken, not stirred, you don't really get from the books. So in the very first Casino Royale that I mentioned, he actually orders a Vesper. That's the first book in the series. And he's very specific about what he wants. And it's not what we uh, think of Bond asking for. So he asks for three measures of Gordon's. One of vodka, half a measure of Kena Lilith. Shake it very well until it's ice cold. Then add a large, thin slice of lemon peel. It's not quite as catchy as the shake and <laughs> no. not stirred, I have to say. So it's really not the history that we remember. That Kena Lilith, no longer produced, would have been popular in Jamaica uh, back then since it contained um, this quinine, which was uh, used to fight malaria. But these very specific instructions were, were actually what we hear in the, the very first Bond uh, film. So again, it, it, these things just grow legs over the years, I guess. Yeah, that Keena Lillis, right, you mentioned that's popular in Jamaica. Ian Fleming, of course, spent a lot of his time, he lived most of the year, I think, or, or certainly some of the year, every year in Jamaica. That must have informed Bond as well and the stories he told. Exactly, and that's a very good point. And, and, and Ian Fleming's, I, go, I guess, own life and biography certainly plays into this. So uh, Fleming himself, from 1946 to 1964, spent at least a couple of months a year at his estate on the, on the north shore of Jamaica, which was called Goldeneye. And that's where he wrote all of the James Bond stories. So that uh, Prowse house and property, they're, they're a hotel uh, now locally, and, and I'm sure a very popular destination for, for James Bond fans. But for those celebrities that used to, of course, come and hang out with, with Ian Fleming in Jamaica, uh, cocktails were, of course, the drink of choice. Vodka martinis, as we know, and uh, brandy, ginger ale, those sorts of things. Beer and wine weren't really an option in the, in the climate that was in Jamaica. Uh, whiskey as well. He talks about Fleming uh, also mixing up a special signature concoction. So it wasn't really a vodka martini shaken, not stirred, but it was actually a flaming rum punch. So he had different people, even uh, his long-serving cook and housekeeper, uh, Violet was her name. She she wrote and spoke about uh, Ian Fleming and his uh, his legendary parties for years and years afterwards. And apparently this flaming rum punch was, in fact, uh, the drink of choice. But certainly you would imagine the vodka martini idea and the shaken, not stirred idea had to come from Ian Fleming's time in Jamaica. So, yeah, this is all quite close to reality, I think. Uh, how much did Fleming then base Bond himself, like the character of Bond, on himself? <laughs> this is a funny one because I think Ian Fleming himself would love the idea of of Bond, of people comparing him to Bond. And, look, why wouldn't you want to be compared to Bond in some ways? But uh, when this was all becoming a, a, a huge thing and James Bond was really, really taking off, Fleming often hinted, and certainly at these uh, parties that he liked to uh, to host, that he had done daring things during the war comparable to the exploits of James Bond. Uh, he also said he liked to be, uh, his biographer and different people like to say he was photographed quite often with a gun in his hand and often said, everything I write has a precedent in truth. Uh, he never claimed to be James Bond, but he also never denied the comparison. So people that compared him with, with 007, he was fine with that. He'd actually been an important figure in the Second World War 
uh, Kieran Fleming himself, the British Naval Intelligence Department. Uh, so had some very, very important secrets up his sleeve, uh, different intelligence operations and, and stuff as well. But his biographer actually says his war in reality was spent behind a desk. His, uh, his wife even used to mock him for being a, what she called a quote-unquote chocolate soldier, which she said was keen on the uniform but likely to melt away at the first sign of fighting, which was <laughs> uh, quite, a way to des- quite a way to describe your husband, to be fair. But uh, he didn't really come near to the front line. The closest was observing a raid in 1942, the Dieppe raid from a destroyer 800 yards offshore. And even this was apparently too close for comfort for, for Ian Fleming. So it's not exactly um, the, the story that we, that we, you know, we'd love to think of Ian Fleming as James Bond himself. But in reality, uh, his biographer says he was a pen pusher. Uh, like the rest of them. So All right. not exactly accurate. Uh, so Factor Fable then, how accurate in a broader sense is the idea of James Bond and the life of James Bond as an MI6 agent? We'd love this to be absolutely true. And some of these things, look, we just can't know. It, it's like in uh, the film Interstellar. There's the black hole in Interstellar and we're like, the directors are often asked, is this an accurate uh, depiction of a black hole? We don't know because we've never seen a black hole. The reality is with MI6 agents, we don't know the truth either. So anyone that tells us what it's like to be an MI6 agent, we kind of just have to accept it, get on with it. Like the drinking, who's to say? The womanizing, who knows if that's accurate uh, amongst the MI6 uh, agents. The love of gadgets, though, and the travel abroad, very, very accurate. The secret keeping, very, very accurate. So all these cars, all these weapons, the strict veil of secrecy, Kieran, I think that gives us enough evidence to say that it's a, it's a fairly accurate portrayal. James Bond is an MI6 agent. So... Uh, I'm going to call this one a fact for the fun of it this week. Yeah, sounds good to me, Shane. Listen, the pleasure as always. That was great fun. Shane Hannan of Off The Ball. He's going to be back next week for another Fact or Fable. And if you have a, an issue, a topic you'd like Shane to investigate, get that into us now via email, thehardshoulder at newstalk.com. Specifically next week, he's going to be asking two questions. Can you really kill someone by dropping a penny from the top of the Empire State Building? And are you really never more than six feet from a rat? in the city both questions to be investigated by Shane this time next week on the hard shoulder Shane again thank you very much we'll get the latest news headlines here's Eamon